I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind on PBS. This is a special exclusive audio edition of our program, and I'm delighted to welcome Brian Fallon. He is Executive Director of Demand Justice. Welcome, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Uh, Brian, I wanted to ask you, on November 4th, um, when a new president potentially is becomes president-elect, um, there is a path that you are on right now to ensure that the state of American justice and jurisprudence reflects the will of the people, uh, which has not happened in the four years that there have been appointments that have represented a tiny fraction of public sentiment um, in the, by the by far right vice president really in control of the judiciary and, and, and Trump in control of the judiciary that does not represent the will of the people. So what do you think needs to happen on day one of, of even the, the transition to begin to rectify the damage of these last four years in the event that there is a president-elect Biden or a Democrat, a Democratic president-elect? Well, we're, we're definitely going to have our work cut out for us. And um, to be honest, I think that the situation that um, hopefully a president-elect Joe Biden, um, uh, the situation he'll be inheriting will be one that, to be honest, is probably not something that we can fully recover from in just the span of one four-year presidential term. Um, what Trump has been able to do is historic. Um, I think, you know, for years to come, um, we will look back and see that the 2016 election was a missed opportunity in so many different senses, but truly in the sense of just deciding the fate of the federal judiciary for the next generation. Um, 200 plus not judicial nominees, all um, extremely young, many of them so young that they've been judged unqualified by the ABA, and all of them very hard-charging ideologues um, whose views are completely out of step with the public and even um, the mainstream judicial philosophy in the United States today. Um, so the challenge will definitely be great, but um, you know, there is a sort of spectrum of responses that the incoming administration um, could pursue and they could be somewhat lackadaisical, which would only further erode and deteriorate our position um, relative to this um, judicial branch that has been taken hostage by the by the far right or he can deal with the situation aggressively and begin to sort of um, make um, make some inroads in um, reforming the judicial branch of government so some things that he could do uh, during the transition phase that would signal an appropriate state of alarm on the part of his um, team would be number one resolving to put somebody in the White House counsel's office that will be a true analog to the role that Don McGahn played for Donald Trump. Don McGahn, of course, um, was the architect uh, of the judicial project under Donald Trump, the one that was piloting the, um, uh, the, the very conveyor belt-like uh, confirmation process for these 200 plus judicial nominees, working hand in glove with the Federalist Society, the outside conservative judicial group that has been creating the judicial pipeline of conservative judicial nominees. And uh, that was really historic, the type of focus that uh, Don McGahn brought to that job as White House counsel under Donald Trump. 
and the Obama administration, you did not see that with the person that was serving in the White House Counsel's Office. They had the, the people that served in that role under Barack Obama had different pet projects, um, starting with um, Greg Craig, who came in wanting to close Guantanamo Bay and, and continuing through the rest of the administration. The, the idea of uh, using that job to sort of um, drive the train on a judicial confirmation project is, is a unique innovation under Don McGahn. And we need to see from the Biden team a commitment to staff the White House Counsel's Office with a similar goal in mind. Um, the other thing I think they need to do is get to the, get to the work of nominating people very quickly. And I hope nominating a different type of person, sort of breaking the paradigm of judicial nominee that we've seen from democratic administrations in the past. And by that, I mean, we, meet, we need to go much younger. Uh, we need to approach this in the same way that the Republicans have in terms of nominating people that will be able to serve for a long period of time. Um, and we need to look at people that bring a professional diversity that we haven't seen in the judicial picks of past Democratic presidents. We need to sort of break the mold of continuing to look at people that have reached partner status at big corporate law firms or people that have worked as federal prosecutors in U.S. attorney's offices and start to look at some people um, that are working in the trenches as public defenders rather than assistant U.S. attorneys, people that are working as labor lawyers, nonprofit lawyers, and bring a diversity and richness of experience to the bench that we just don't see there right now. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, in the, uh, in the medium to long term, Democrats really need to brace themselves for the, for the notion that we're going to need structural reform of the judicial branch to ever truly right some of the wrongs that we've seen in terms of the hijacking of the courts that have happened under this president. And so Vice President Biden does not support many of those proposals right now, but the public is increasingly supporting some of them. If you look at ideas like judicial term limits um, for perhaps implementing an 18-year term limit for Supreme Court justices, 70-plus percent of the public supports that. Um, but I think more than that, we need to start looking at the idea of adding seats and not just the top uh, of the judicial branch in terms of the Supreme Court, but also throughout the lower courts. And in that sense, and I'll close on this point, I think that, you know, the next Democratic president should in some ways strive to emulate what Jimmy Carter did in the, in the 1970s. Um, we grew the size of the federal judiciary by over a third in terms of the number of uh, judicial appointments that were, um, that were added um, based on workload and, and, and burdens that were falling on uh, the number of judges that were in place at that time. They vastly increased the number of federal judges on the bench. We ought to do that this time. That's the only real chance we have to mitigate the impact of these conservative ideologues that Trump has put across the appellate courts in this country. That's helpful, Brian, in the volume of which is significant in terms of just how many uh, Republican-appointed judges and far-right-appointed judges uh, that are serving now. When I think of the name of your organization, Demand Justice, the only thing that is sufficiently aggressive that is demanding justice and then implementing justice is for every appointment that Trump got to make illegitimately, uh, if you want to say illegitimately because he should have been impeached, uh, and convicted or illegitimately because he didn't win the popular vote, undemocratically, right, for every person he appointed to the Supreme Court or to the appellate division, there should be two um, that the next president, a Democratic president, assuming that Democrat wins the popular and electoral college vote, that is demanding justice. You know, anything short of that is is not going to be justice, right? And I know you're saying it's a long slog, and, and, and it's going to take a lot of time. But but do you agree with that 
sort of operating principle that simply appointing two more Supreme Court judges, justices, to um, balance Kavanaugh and Gorsuch isn't fair. That's not justice. And appointing one uh, federal judge for every federal judge that Trump appointed, that wouldn't be fair either, you know, in representing the will of the people. And, and if we go back even further, George W. Bush appointing Samuel Alito, appointing John Roberts, uh, and of course, 2000, the will of the American people was to vote for Al Gore. So, I mean, demanding justice is going to have to be an aggressive thing. And I'm just wondering if you're on that same page that really one judge for every judge that Trump appointed isn't going to be enough. Well, I mean, fundamentally, you have a Supreme Court that I think in the public's eyes is starting to be viewed as illegitimate. And um, as, as a Democratic Party, um, we can't just be content to win the next election and nominate judges in the normal course when Democratic appointed judges decide to take senior status in 2021. Um, th that, that is the equivalent of like running in place. And, and, and any strategy that at best is running in place is not gonna be sufficient. We need to take steps to address what, what happened over these last four years. And uh, because continuing to look the other way in spite of what happened with the appointment of Merrick Garland, to never seek to address that wrong just incentivizes Mitch McConnell and the Republicans to handle things exactly the same way if a similar situation arises in the future. Why would, it would be totally irrational for Mitch McConnell to not execute exactly the same strategy that we saw in 2016, because it worked to a T for him. And there's been no effort, um, there's not been an insufficient mobilization on the Democratic side to truly confront um, what happened there and to propose policies and structural reforms to the court that would both um, undo the, the benefit that Republicans derive from the theft of that seat and change the way that we do appointments such that those types of um, scenarios can't recur in the future. Um, so yeah, I do think people need to broaden their minds and expand their imaginations about what's doable and what's necessary with respect to the Supreme Court um, and the judicial branch in this country. And you know, I think we're getting there. The reason why I think it's still gonna take a little time yet is because Democrats have this responsibility gene uh, that even if they get punched in the nose, they, they like to turn the other cheek all the time. Um, they're not as willing as Republicans or, or Mitch McConnell in the most extreme instance is to uh, tear down the pillars of government in order to get their way. Uh, we like to see things function. We like to uphold norms, even if the other side is not. Uh, but at some point, if you do, truly do care about upholding those norms, if you truly want to preserve the rule of law and uh, some of the sort of unspoken um, customs that prop up our, our democracy, then you need to be willing to play hardball in order to enforce those rules. Otherwise, the guardrails completely fall away. And so there's an um, emerging body of scholarship on the idea of constitutional hardball. Scholars like David Posen at Columbia um, Law School have written about this. Um, and I have some colleagues that I know that you've spoken with as well, uh, like Aaron Belkin, that have also done a lot of writing and, and, and uh, talks about this. You know, at the very least, Democrats need to brandish a credible threat that they are willing to respond in kind when Republicans 
you know, uh, go off the road and completely are willing to engage in, in, in hardball tactics uh, like we saw happen in 2016. And absent I, that, yeah. we're, we're going to be in a situation that, um, that, is, that, that uh, doesn't change and where progressive priorities for the next 30 years are going to be uh, completely at risk and vulnerable to legal challenges mounted in bad faith um, and ultimately vindicated at the Supreme Court because of a 5-4 conservative majority that was illegitimately earned. Right. And, you know, I think that you and Aaron Belkin both have done good work in conceiving of a, of a narrative demanding justice, take back the court, that is framing it in a way that reflects the American people who say, we want this change, and uh, that doesn't harken back to the kind of obsolete um, language that failed, you know, the, the sort of notion of packing the court, or even the, the idea of expanding the court, when you're really talking about preserving and enhancing democracy. I mean, this is a democratic enhancement or self-preservation. And I think your adoption of that language and your mission and your organization and Aaron's mission reflects that. It reflects the fact that historically, if you look at that political science literature and historiography, it was unimaginative and it was, and it was co coming at that history um, in, a, in a way that was reflexively bad. And now we need to, we need to jolt in the other direction because it's, a, it's reflexively obligatory. You know, it's not, it's, it's not a question. It's, this is what is required as long as the Constitution, the Supreme Court decides the law of the land, this is what's required. Let me just close with, with these sort of parting questions, Brian. You know, in order to demand justice, you have to be in the executive and have a new president by January 2021. Are you concerned um, that you're going to have to uh, mobilize a campaign to prevent another Trump Supreme Court nomination and confirmation? And are you concerned that the current Supreme Court, whether it's in its in, in present composition or a new composition because of a new nominee, could could steal the election uh, and, and could basically, judging on a technical matter a la Bush v. Gore or Bit looking at the example of Wisconsin, if it is a nail biter in a close election, that this Supreme Court could stymie justice. So I guess those those are the two parting questions I have for you. Um, those are two doomsday scenarios that you've raised the specter of uh, the idea of a vacancy occurring amidst all this um, confused state of affairs that we're in with coronavirus right now, and then the prospect of a disputed election with the Supreme Court siding with Trump. As scary as both those prospects are, I think they're both entirely realistic scenarios, unfortunately. Uh, on the first, um, our organization is um, uh, preparing contingency plans for uh, that scenario, which we hope won't occur. Um, but we do have a lot of elderly justices on the court, uh, and we do know that uh, uh, folks over 65 tend to be the most vulnerable to, um, to the coronavirus. So it, is, it, it would be irresponsible to not be bracing for that situation. I think if we're realistic about it, Mitch McConnell has already telegraphed that he'll happily uh, rush to convene confirmation proceedings for a, a Supreme Court nominee notwithstanding the fact that we'll be on the eve of an election and notwithstanding the fact that it would completely run afoul of the own, his own principle that he set in 2016. 
Um, so he'll be incorrigible with respect to that. He'll push forward. Um, I think that the public will be enlivened. The public will be heavily, hugely engaged because they'll recognize the hypocrisy and the Republicans rushing through to try to confirm somebody at the 11th hour. At the very least, I think <clears throat> Democrats' approach should be that nobody ought to be considered prior to the election, that what the rule that Mitch McConnell put in place in 2016 ought to be followed this time, um, or else he's a hypocrite. And I think we need to brandish credibly the threat that uh, if they go forward with this, Republicans that vote for it, and there's a number of in-cycle Republicans that are extremely vulnerable right now, not just Susan Collins, but Cory Gardner, Martha McSally in Arizona, increasingly Tom Tillis, in North Carolina, people that I think you could put real heat on. And if they go forward with this and push somebody through nonetheless, I think you need to credibly brandish um, the threat explicitly that part of the agenda, if Democrats regain power in 2021, will be to alter the composition and the makeup of the judiciary. And I think that we will have public support and a, and a wind at our back if we're coming off of a, yet another illegitimate confirmation process. Um, on the scenario of the election being decided by the by the Supreme Court, I think it's total—it's totally believable that that could happen, unfortunately. And I think that the, we are on the strongest ground rhetorically. Uh, when we make the argument for structural reform of the court, um, the most convincing narrative that, that we can lay out that really wins people over is telling the story that traces a through line from Bush v. Gore, through Citizens United, through the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, through the upholding of Ohio's voter purging efforts a few years back to the upholding or the turning uh, a blind eye to partisan gerrymandering as you saw in the case that was decided last term and now just this week with the ruling in Wisconsin. This 5-4 conservative majority consistently sides with Republican Party interests on all questions related to the conducting of elections and voting rights in this country. I think that the public has increasingly had enough. Um, the most, when we do focus groups and polls, the most consistent recallability that, that um, the public has about bad decisions uh, that the Supreme Court has put out recently is Citizens United and the um, unlimited money that that unleashed in our elections. And so talking about this court, um, there's a million criticisms you can make of this court because they're so hostile to a number of issues that the public cares about right now, from gun safety to climate to abortion rights. But I think talking about the court with respect to its fundamental threat to democracy appropriately conveys the stakes and does create a sort of political permission structure for us to embark on serious structural reform. Because a lot of times, some of the more timid Democrats, what they'll say is, you know what, if we care about the courts and we want to appoint more judges of, of our choosing, let's just win the next election. Well, that argument fails to hold water when you can't trust that the next election is going to be fairly conducted because you have a judicial branch that is siding consistently with one party and how those elections get conducted. So I think that's the whole ball of wax that we ought to focus on when we talk about what's broken with the, with the judicial system in this country. And it sounds like, Brian, that despite the Republicans' effort and the Supreme Court's attempt to frame Citizens United as though it was a positive thing, Citizens Uniting for the betterment of society, when in fact it was corporations united to support oligarchic interests, uh, you know, and not representative government, that the public knows that, you're saying, based on the polling data, that they that this is one of the most unfavorable decisions, uh, and, and that is the public sentiment, notwithstanding the the way that the Supreme Court just beautifully framed it so that it was the opposite of what it means, right? Citizens United, it wasn't. It was the opposite of that. But you're saying the public knows better. 
Yeah, we just did a poll literally in the last two weeks. And um, we asked people overall, we didn't even ask this with respect to um, issues coming before the court, just in general, issues that animate them. And number one, no surprise, this is always the case, was healthcare. Uh, number two uh, was climate change. Number three was gun safety. And number four was money in politics. And then the focus groups that we do when we do ask people about their current impressions of the Supreme Court and their favorability towards the court, um, you know, one of the things that mitigates um, having a full-on uh, level of outrage among Democrats towards the court is uh, people do have recall uh, of the ACA decisions. Uh, John Roberts siding with the liberals to uphold the ACA, at least the, the non-Medicaid expansion portions of the law. Uh, and they do remember uh, fondly the, um, the Obergefell decision on gay marriage. But the number one negative decision that they race to invoke is Citizens United. And so I think that the Wisconsin decision this week just brings into even further relief um, for people that the, the courts, that there's a partisan bias at work with at least the Supreme Court in terms of the consistency. Uh, there's some, as those other issues exemplify, you know, on ACA, the liberals were able to win over John Roberts to uphold the bulk of the law. On Obergefell, you did have a fifth vote in Anthony Kennedy uh, for, for, uh, for gay marriage. Um, but on issues of uh, the conducting of elections and fundamental issues of democracy and empowering the people over the moneyed interests, um, that this five-form majority, you know, the, some of the personnel has changed over time, but the Roberts Court majority in the Roberts Court era sides 100% of the time in favor of Republican Party interests. There's no, uh, it's, the, it's the issue of where they're most consistent and where the impacts are most deeply felt across our politics. So I think that's the most compelling way that we can frame the problem. And I think it's an answer to those people that just suggest that the, that the way to ensure that we can appoint more judges is to win elections. They're rigging the elections. Um, yeah. And, 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 you think that Trump is not going to be able to, Trump is not, you know, there's been a lot of literature in the last couple of weeks reassuring people that Trump can't postpone the election. And that is true, uh, that, that that requires more than just presidential edict to try to move the date of the election. But we can see red state governors, you know, trying to do all kinds of funny business with reducing polling locations, reducing early voting periods in states that are supposed to have them um, in order to disenfranchise people in, in citing coronavirus as the reason. And uh, I expect that the Wisconsin ruling will be only the first of several voting-related issues to come before the court before this election cycle is over. And there's no reason for any confidence whatsoever that they'll ever rule on an election-related issue against a red state governor or against Trump's interests politically. Right. And I mean, all you have to do is look to John Tester in Montana, an example of how someone uh, really devoted to ending the Citizens United rigging of, of, of uh, politics in favor of, of oligarchy. You know, it's, it is a mainstream issue. And uh, there, there are independent, moderate and Republican voters who, who uh, support the, and, and would support um, tying judicial reform or democratic enhancement, if you want to call it, to uh, that kind of representation, representative politics uh, that is going to end um, the the malignant influence of, of uh, you know few uh, over um, the the soul and heart of of the millions here. I just you know the, do you have contingency? You mentioned contingency for the possibility of a open Supreme Court seat. Uh, with respect to the funny business and 
suppression of, of the vote and intimidation and, and the pandemic impact on uh, polling sites and the availability of mail-in ballots. Is, is that an area in, in which you're also developing some contingencies right now? Well, that's going to be an area that's going to require all hands on deck and, and, and the efforts and, and resources of more groups than just mine. Um, so, um, but, I, but I sense that in this era uh, of the last month or so, um, notwithstanding the fact that people are working from home and, and activism and organizing um, has had to innovate in terms of how we continue to work and how we keep people engaged when we can't gather in person. Um, I do think that um, the key um, organizations on the in the progressive movement are increasingly um, centering around the need to ensure, um, for instance, that the next phase of um, relief that comes for uh, comes out of Congress, the so-called Phase Four package, includes enhanced resources for the conducting of elections. We only got uh, a, a small fraction of the two billion that. Uh, a lot of civil rights groups and good government groups were seeking in the last tranche of support that uh, that the Senate and House passed. Um, you're seeing an increase in amount of uh, organizing around pressing states to adopt uh, vote by mail or or having some kind of federal provision to incentivize states to allow that uh, in the next bailout package. And so that is commanding the attention of uh, all groups from indivisible to move on. And so, yes, we will be um, we will be pressing for those types of reforms to be adopted and those resources to be made available, um, but we won't be alone on that. that that's, a, that's a cause that I think is going to be the cause of the progressive movement for the next seven months. Ryan, thank you for the work that you do and really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks again for having me. It's such an important topic and I appreciate you giving the time and space to it. Thank you.